0: Well if you would please turn with me in your copy of the word of God to the book of Genesis 1 last time God willing and at least in this series as we continue in chapter 15 we're going to read the opening verses and the last verses leaving out the portion we preached last week This is the word of God please listen and take heed how you hear It's actually beginning forty nine thirty three. When Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel, forty days were required for it that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father has made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb, that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me." Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father with him, went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, it was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mitzrayim, it's beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded him, saying, "For this sons, for this sorry, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, and buried him in the in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. And then verse twenty two. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he in his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Mahir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. And you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being one hundred and ten years old, and they embalmed him. He was put in a coffin in Egypt. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but this is the word of God, and it endures forever. So we said a few weeks ago that Genesis begins in a garden and ends in a cemetery. It. Begins with plenty in the Garden of Eden and ends with a famine in the land of Egypt. It begins with life and ends in death. Could there be a more graphic picture of the consequences of Adam's choice? Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, and God said, In the day that you do, you will surely die. And their choice began a process. They died in their souls immediately. And then it only took a matter of time for their bodies to catch up with their souls. Their souls were dead, their bodies were dying, and the one leads to the other. And that's a, a sober thing. It's a reminder to you and to me that uh, there is no life beyond God. And the essence of sin is to try and pr- prove that statement wrong. Men reach beyond God for a better life, and find no life at all. That's always the way. It's like when you're using an electrical blower. In Savannah, we had a yard that was just big enough for an electrical blower and the the extension cord that I got from Home Depot, but it wasn't quite long enough. There was about five or ten feet too long, too much in the yard. And when I would try and blow the leaves off the edge of the yard down near the road, I would pull and pull and pull, and then Suddenly, I would pull the extension cord out of the wall, and the blower would immediately die. And then, in essence, that's what Adam did. He stretched himself away from the presence of God and disconnected himself from the life giving presence of the living God. And the moment he did, his soul died, and his body began to die. And it's a reminder then, as we come to the end of the book of of Genesis, that we need an astounding redemption. We don't just need redeemed from our misdeeds and our misspeaking. Politicians always speak of, I misspoke when they really meant I lied. Their misdeeds and our misspeaking and our mistakes. We need to be redeemed from our mortality. We need someone to die our death and give us the power of an endless life, and that someone is Jesus. And the end of the book of Genesis points us forward to Him in the death of these Old Testament heroes. Now, this morning in our sermon, though, I want to look with you at a slightly different subject. It's a subject that I'm asked about all the time, and I have resolved finally, saying I don't teach Sunday school, that I would teach a, a kind of a class on the importance of Christian burial. And so, let me ask the question then, does it matter what you and I do with our bodies when we die? Does it matter? Now, for more and more people in our age today, they would say, no, it doesn't matter. The body is the remains of a person, and uh, we live in an age that no longer believes in God, It no longer believes in an afterlife, and so it's no surprise as Uh, the faith of America vacates. The practice of America changes. For generations in Europe and in America, we buried our dead. Cremation was almost unheard of in the times of the Founding Fathers, I imagine, anyway at least, but no doubt the vast majority of our Founding Fathers were buried. You can go to their graves. And we buried our dead back then because we believed in an afterlife. They were resting in their graves. We bury our dead in the posture of sleep, on their backs, their hands folded, looking up, and sometimes even facing east in expectation of the great day of resurrection. And the way we treated our body was a reflection of our faith and of our future. And Cultures that don't have such a hope in the afterlife tend not to take such care of the body. The Hindus, for example, they universally burn their dead because the body's done. It's finished. Life's gone. The the, the person has been absorbed into the One, as it were, the Om. Uh, The Greeks also, many of the ancient Greeks were Gnostics. They believed in the, the power of the mind and the importance of the mind, and what you do in your body doesn't matter. And that often led to asceticism and harsh treatment of the body, because the, the real life is found in your soul, and that idea persisted in the church, where people thought what really matters is the soul, so monks would kind of wear itchy, scratchy habits and so forth, and severe treatment of the body so that they could focus on spiritual things like praying and so forth. And the Greeks went that way. They also went the other way where they gave in to license, the body's trash, doesn't matter how you live in it, you just, you know, you can do whatever you want. And so it was kind of almost funny. Some of the Greeks would say, you know, you shouldn't have sex with your wife because that's too carnal. And then they also would say, but you can't have sex with a prostitute because your body's trash. It kind of was a bizarre lie of Satan. But the soul is what really matters, they would say, and had this, this saying, suma, sima. Suma is body, sima is tomb, the body is a tomb. And death is escaping the tomb. You want to get rid of the body and get away from the body. That's, that's how you get to real life, into the spiritual afterlife. And so, there's no surprise that cultures that have that dismal view of the body have a pretty dismal view of the corpse, and they don't take much care of it. And it's no surprise then, as America has lost its faith, that they lose any reverence for the body. You know, go back to 2001 even, and or 2005, just under a third, 32 percent of Americans uh, opted for cremation at death. Now that number's risen last year to 56 percent, so under a third to more than a half in just 17 years. And the explanation for that change is we have lost our faith, and we're not willing to pay the cost of burial. It is expensive. The average cost of cremation, direct cremation, just getting rid of the body in the crematorium, is about $1,500. But the average cost of burial is ten times that, $11,500. And you can spend even more than that if you want all the bells and whistles. And so you can understand why most Americans adopt that dismally uh, pragmatic position regarding the body. What surprises me, however, is how many in the church are following that pragmatic view. Many of you, I know, plan maybe to cremate your bodies, and some of you have cremated your relatives. I want to be very clear this morning. We'll get to that at the end of the sermon. If you've cremated your your loved one, uh, you've not damaged their eternity, you've not Rob them of a body in the afterlife. God made us from dust in the beginning. He'd be quite able to remake us from dust in the end. Um, but the question I want to ask you this morning, is it proper, is it fitting for Christians to cremate the body and dispose of it as if we had no further use of it, and grind it up and scatter the ashes, or should we take care of the bodies of Uh, Were dead? That's the question this morning. And let's begin by looking at the patriarchs here. It's a biblical fact that the patriarchs were intensely concerned, that they were buried, and they were even more concerned where they were buried. Joseph or Jacob, first of all, makes his son. Joseph, swear. Your words' not enough. In one sense, he wasn't insulting some, somebody he said, "Swear to solemn covenantal responsibility, son. I want to be buried. Not here in Egypt. I want to be buried in Cana. My father made me swear, saying and when I first read this, it was like, I'm about to die in my tomb. That's a strange place to die." And then I realized, no, no, there's a, there's a cool on. I'm about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. That's terrible English grammar. You can only put your verb first. Bury me in my tomb. But Jacob says, in my tomb that I hewed out in the land of Canaan, there bury me. He puts the most important words first. That's what the Hebrews do, I suppose, just in case you die before you get to the end of the sentence. And then you've at least said the most important words first, right? In my tomb in Canaan, bury me. And Joseph emphasizes that to Pharaoh. God made me swear. And Pharaoh says, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. And then Joseph also, when he comes to die at the end of the passage, he makes them swear. Verse 25, then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Now, interestingly, Joseph... um, His bones are not taken up immediately as Jacob's were. I'm not sure why. The, the most obvious explanation is the end of the book of Exodus looks or the book of Genesis, sorry, looks forward to the book of Exodus. And Joseph wants to be part of that great adventure of being taken up. And so in Exodus 13, 19, Moses, we're told, took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear. God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. So, Joseph deliberately wanted to be part of the Exodus. So, he said, keep me here in a sarcophagus, and then take my bones up with you when you leave Egypt, right? Um, Why? Well, the answer is clearly faith. Joseph connects the place of burial with the certain visitation of God. Now, he's not speaking about God visiting him at the funeral as we do. He's speaking about the visitation of God in mercy to bring Israel up out of the land of Egypt. And in confidence of that promise, Joseph wanted to be buried where the people were about to go, up into the promised land, right? Now, that's essentially uh, what the writer to the Hebrews says, right? That, that, that they wanted to be buried in the land of promise. Turn in Hebrews 11 a second, and we'll look at that together, just I want you to see this. Hebrews eleven thirteen. This is the great chapter of faith, of people who live by faith. Well, in Hebrews thirteen, eleven thirteen. Um, the writer says, these, the patriarchs, all died in faith, not having received the promises, the things promised, having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return." But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, it's strange here, because they died in faith, right? And the writer says explicitly they didn't want to go back to Cana, right? They were were wanting a different homeland. If they'd been thinking, verse 15, of that land from which they had gone out, i.e. Cana, they would have had opportunity to go back there if they'd wanted to go to Cana, Jacob and Joseph could have gone back there and lived there, but they didn't, right? They were thinking they were looking for a better country, which is a heavenly one. Now, immediately, as good Gnostics, you're thinking, oh, they wanted to go to heaven and be disembodied in the heavenly state. No, no. The heavenly land is the Bible's way of describing what happens at the end of time when Messiah returns and Jerusalem comes down to this earth, and there's a new heavens and a new earth, and the heavenly land becomes this new land, the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's why Paul speaks of us having spiritual bodies in that time. You've got a fleshly body now. You'll have a a spiritual body then. And Paul speaks about that in 1 Corinthians 15, so turn back there a second with me. Pick up the reading in um, verse 35. But someone will ask… How are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? You foolish person! You sow What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So, Paul is using the illustration of when you die, you're planting a seed that will germinate and grow forever. It's a beautiful picture. Another reason why we bury our dead in the ground, right? If you burn your seed, you know, as Spurgeon said about sermons, the danger of overstudying a sermon, he who, he who plants boiled potatoes ought not to expect much of a harvest. Good love Spurgeon. Well, you don't burn your seed, you bury it in the ground. It grows. But God gives to each body as He has chosen, this is the the plant growing, and to each kind of seed its own body, for not all flesh is the same. But there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory." So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown in perishable. what is sown, sorry, is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are from heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust— we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So, you now are bearing the image of Adam, the man of dust, and you're dying and returning to the dust. But if you're in Christ, when Christ returns, you will bear the image of the heavenly man, not the dusty man. But that heavenly man, that spiritual body will be a body living on the earth, the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so, the writer to the Hebrews is saying, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not really want to go back to Canaan. Ultimately, they wanted to go to heaven on earth when the new Jerusalem comes down to earth and abides here at the coming of Messiah. It's almost as if they had read Ezekiel 37 before Ezekiel wrote it, the Valley of Dry Bones. Turn there with me a second. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led them, he led me around and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. If you read at the end of the chapter, verse 24, it speaks of David, Christ, coming back and ruling these people. And so, it's plain that the Old Testament saints believed that when Messiah came, great David, greater son, he would raise the dead. The problem was that they didn't realize that there were two comings. The Bible speaks of the two comings almost side by side, often intermixed and so, it, it's only when you get to the New Testament that you realize the two comings are separated by several thousand years, at least. Right. But that's the, that was the hope of these Israelites. It wasn't that they would live in Israel again. They would live in the new Israel again, the, the new Narnia that, that uh, Lewis told so beautifully at the end of the last battle. So, they were longing for a heavenly country in which they could live in their heavenly spiritual bodies that Messiah would give them when they came back. And because they believed that promise of the grave's opening, they put themselves in their graves. They cared how they treated the body. So, the patriarchs showed great concern for the body. Then all through the Old Testament, every other saint— David, they were all buried, who had the chance to be buried at least anyway. They were buried. It was a great shame to be left to the, open, to the carrion birds to come and carry you off piece by piece and bone by bone. Uh, climactically, when you get to the New Testament, though, we see the Father. So, the patriarchs took very great care of their bodies, and as did all the Old Testament saints, then the New Testament, Jesus, the Father, took very great care of His Son's body. Turn with me in John 19 a second. Why were Christ's bones not broken, John tells us? There was an immediate reason, tumbling about the tiny minds of the Roman soldiers, but there was a deeper reason. Verse 31, John, sorry, John 19, 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, that Sabbath, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away, because you can't breathe on a cross unless you use your legs to lift yourself up, and so they would, if you were taking too long to die, they would kind of help you along by breaking your legs. Cruel kindness. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water, which is a reference to Ezekiel 47. He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe, for these things took place that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Now, interestingly, that quotation is from Psalm 34, verse 19 and 20. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Right? Many are the afflictions of the righteous, and the Lord delivers him out of them all. Well, Jesus has been a sinner because of you. But that debt's been paid. He is is no longer a sinner because He's been to hell forever on the cross. In the eternal weight of the infinite glory of God the Son incarnate, those few hours in the darkness added up to eternal hell. He bore not the highlight reel of hell. I watched the highlights of the FA Cup yesterday, Liverpool won. My team was childhood support, and it was wonderful, and I could watch it all in 15 minutes. It was great. On the cross, Jesus did not receive the highlight reel of hell. He received infinite and eternal damnation in those hours of darkness upon the cross. He was crucified, died, and was buried. What they did to his body, he descended into hell. What happened to his soul upon the cross, and the and the confession that the, we talked about that on Friday, man, didn't we? that the early Gnostics who believed the body didn't matter, and and that heresy was spreading, and every line of the Apostles' Creed deals with the um, Gnostic heresy. No time to go into that now. But the Creed emphasizes the physicality of Christ's sufferings. Crucified, died, and buried, what they did to His body. He descended into hell. What happened to His soul? But they stress the physicality of His sufferings, because it matters, right? Right? We'll know more about that. We can talk about it later. But once your your sins had been paid for, once um, all of the promises regarding the piercing of Christ had been fulfilled, God says, no more. It would be… The world would be a vast hell of uncertainty if the wrath of God could fall on a place where it was not deserved. And the wrath of God fell upon Christ upon the cross because he deserved it because of you. But once he had paid for your sins, he no longer deserved even the slightest stroke of a man's hair or hand. And so, God forbade those Roman soldiers to break his legs. They didn't know that, but God knew it, because it would have been unlawful for God to allow this righteous man to suffer one more stroke than all your sins deserved. And because it was finished, God said, no more. You will not touch my boy any more with violence, because violence is no longer called for. It's a beautiful picture of the receipt of your redemption. Not one more stroke was needed because not one more stroke was deserved, he paid it all upon the cross. And God takes care even of his body' son's body. It says in Psalm 16, "He will not abandon his holy one to Shaol, nor will he allow his holy one to undergo decay." And that speaks of Christ primarily, not rotting in the grave. Here's the beautiful thing, though. It mattered that Christ was buried. God had His body taken care of. He wasn't thrown into a mass grave, as would have normally been the fate of the crucified. But Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea go and ask for Christ's body, and they take it down, and they put it into the grave. And all of the creeds stress that. Crucified, died, and was buried. All of them. The Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, Caledonian creed, they all—all all the great evangelical creeds—stress the importance of Christ's burial. Why? Because Christ has to do everything His people have done. He goes through all of the stages of our lives, a young boy and an adult man, everything in between. Did Israel go down into Egypt? Well, Christ goes down into Egypt at the, at the, at, at, in the early parts of His life, running away from Herod. Did? Israel come up out of Egypt. Christ comes up out of Egypt. When Israel came up out of Egypt, were they baptized into the Red Sea, as Paul speaks of? Yes, they were. Well, then Christ is baptized into the waters of the Jordan. After coming through the Red Sea, were Israel tempted for 40 years in the wilderness? Yes, they were, and they failed that test. And Christ comes up out of the waters of baptism. What happens to him? He is tested for 40 days in the wilderness, recapitulating, re-experiencing, redoing all of the mistakes Israel made. Chelsea yesterday missed a penalty, hit the crossbar, hit the upright. Wonderful moment. (laughs) But that man is wishing somebody could go back, anybody else, even the goalkeeper, I wish somebody could go back and retake that penalty. And Israel's whole story was one missed penalty after another, and Jesus retakes them all. Were Israel led as captives under the curse of God outside the walls of Jerusalem and off into a godless, God-forsaken exile in Babylon? Yes, they were. And so, Jesus on the, on the Via Dolorosa is led outside the city walls, out into the darkness, far away from God into exile. Did Israel end up buried in apparent hopelessness in the grave? Yes, and so was Christ. And then Christ, for the first time, does something Israel never did. He comes up out of the grave as the firstborn from the dead. And because He's the firstborn from the dead, from the graves, it therefore stands to reason that everybody who believes that and hopes for that Themselves will make sure their bodies put into the grave for the same reason that I- Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph were concerned to be buried in faith in the promised land. And if you look at John five, when Christ comes back, we're not going to go there now. This morning, Christ is is expects when he comes back, he will call his people from their graves, and so follow me now. We're almost finished. Um, Um, the, the Pharisees, or the, sorry, the fathers, took great care of their bodies. The Father took great care of Christ's body. My last point is, you also should take great care of your bodies and ensure that they are put into the grave. Why? Well, because Jesus died for you, not just for your soul, but for your body. And your body now is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's why you feed it healthily, or you ought to. That's why you drag it to the gym or some other place of exercise, torture, several times a week, because you want to look after it, right? You don't just walk your dog, you walk your body to get your 10,000 steps in to try and preserve it, because it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. We don't abuse our bodies. We take care of them. They have spiritual significance, and Christ is united not just to our souls. He's, he's united to you in the totality of your being, your soul, and your body. And there's a beautiful phrase in our, in our Confession of Faith, the Shorter Catechism, question 37, what benefits do believers receive at their death? The, the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory, but their bodies— Or, while their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves until the resurrection. Our bodies are still united to Christ. So, let the pagans dispose of their bodies because they think there's nothing more to be done with them or for them. But we show devotion for our bodies because they still matter to Christ. We bury them in a posture of sleep, on their backs, facing east, perhaps. And we dress them up because they've somewhere to go. That's why Jesus speaks of the death of his people as sleeping. Sleeping. Jairus's daughter, don't be weeping for her, she's asleep, she's not dead. The amazing providence this morning totally unplanned, John eleven, we read that this morning. Jesus said of Lazarus he's dead, but he's asleep. And so we don't grind up our dead bodies for the same reason you don't grind up your children when they're sleeping. Because they're not, they're sleeping, right? You'd be murdered if you killed them and ground them up when they're sleeping. They're sleeping. We don't grind up our bodies because they're sleeping. We'll have need for them again. And so what we do with our bodies is highly symbolic of our faith and of our future. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. As quintessential Americans, pragmatic, you know, bottom line, you're thinking, $11,500 is an awful lot for a picture. True. But some pictures are worth the cost. We're making a statement. We're planting a seed that will grow forever. This body matters. I think there is tremendous pastoral significance, as well, that we can go to the graveyard and look at the grave of mum and dad and husband and wife and brother and sister and son and daughter, God forbid. But we go to the, the graves of our loved ones, and, and their bodies there. There is something tangible in the ground, because something tangible is going to come out of the ground. And tangibilities matter to our physicality. It's why God doesn't just give us words, He gives us a picture, a little piece of bread and a little cup of wine to hold on to. Because it matters. We want something to hold on to that shows us that there's something real happened on the cross. A real body was broken, real blood was shed for real sin that I've committed. And so God stoops to our physicality to give us physical pictures. And we lay someone in the grave, and it's tangible, and it's, it's more than just their remains. What we put in, their, in, in the grave is also their tomorrow, and their resurrection matters. Now, I know, some of you are thinking, okay, but what about, you know, my granny went down to the cellar to see what the gas leak might be. She lit a match to see better. Oh, bring back my granny to me. You know, granny's been blown to bits. The shark, you know, maybe, you know, gobbled up. Jemima and little bits of her have been, have been deposited, you know, throughout the oceans. What about them? Right. Well, let me, if you, excuse me if you're using a technical, logical term this morning. That is just a stupid way to argue. That's the way the progressives argue. When they want to argue for abortion, they take you to the most handicapped you know, ruins of an Adam. You can imagine. Child. What about a child with no brain, conceived by rape or incest? You know, he's got no legs, and he's just, he just only lives like 36 hours when it's born. When it's born, can we abort that? And the hopeful answer is, well, okay. And then they, they take that wedge and they drive the wedge through and make it bigger and bigger and bigger till you can slaughter a, a whole healthy baby right up until even after the point of death, birth. Sorry. That's a a stupid way to argue. You never argue from the particular to the general. By the way, it is still sinful to kill life that's been conceived by rape, conceived by incest, no matter how handicapped it is. It's God's life, and God gives it, and only God can take it. I don't care how it came into existence. Right? Now, but you you don't argue from the particular to the general when it comes to cremation either. Like, how a body dies matters, like murder is one thing and natural death the other. God may providentially allow it, a person to be blown to bits, eaten by a shark and deer knows how many other thousand ways to go, or even burn. Do you know, firefighters in, in uh, 9-11, some of them were believers, and they were crushed, and we couldn't find anything of them to bury, right? And they will not be jeopardized in the resurrection. But it's one thing for that to happen by accident. It's entirely another thing, I put it to you, if you choose to do that on purpose. The body matters. Now, to be clear, okay, I'm not saying that it's a sin to cremate somebody, God does not command us to be buried. And I'm certainly not saying that if you cremated mummy or daddy, that they're going to be kind of like in trouble in heaven if they're Christians. Because um, God made them from dust in the beginning. He can quite easily remake them again from dust in the future. And if you wait a very long time, I mean hundreds of years, eventually the bones will turn back to dust. But they just found recently in Flanders a mass grave of British um, Tommies who, who died at a field hospital in the First World War, and they were buried uh, in the Flanders mud, and the, the skeletons are still there. You can, they're still obviously male skeletons from the pelvis and so forth, and their teeth, their dental records. You could find out who they were if you could go back and compare dental records. Those bodies were still very much recognizably human after a hundred years plus in the mud in the Flanders. So, our bodies are remarkably… Um, we, we don't turn totally to the dust, except after a very, very, very long time. But there's something beautiful. I, I, I'll tell you this story before we finish. You know, there's a glorious a Presbyterian father from New Orleans called Benjamin Morgan Palmer, and he buried five of his six children before they reached adulthood, and three of the five died in young infancy and in toddler age. It was his first or second son was a beautiful little boy with curly blonde hair, and he buried him in his yard outside his house. And he went out to bury the next son or daughter who died. As he's digging down into the grave, he said, I discovered the wee lads' blonde locks. As blonde as the day I put them in the grave, he said. It was a foretaste of heaven, the resurrection morning. It's a beautiful picture. Even Maybe ten years after the wee boy died, his hair was as blonde as the day I laid him in the grave. And he saw it, and it reminded him of heaven. It's a beautiful picture of hope and faith and resurrection glory. Sometimes, though, people also choose cremation. I've heard atheists get cremated so in the hope of escaping resurrection. And I came across this, and I'll end the sermon with this this morning, from Asahel Nettleton. He was a preacher of the Second Great Awakening in America, a Presbyterian, a great preacher and very gripping, as you'll hear. And he's preaching a sermon on the Last uh, Judgment. And he's speaking about Christ appearing in the glory, the heavens torn open. And as the heavens are torn open and Christ comes through, he says this, at the same time, The dead will be raised. Before him shall be gathered all nations. The hour has come when all that are in their graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Every grave will open and all the bones arise. The bones of unnumbered millions scattered over the face of the earth will all come together, bone to his bone. The dust and ashes of martyrs and all who once perished in the flames shall come forth. The sea gives up the dead which are in it, and death and hell deliver up the dead which are in them. The elements shall be made to deliver up every particle of human dust. The whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together, but it shall nigh be delivered from its long bondage of human corruption. The height of Carmel and the bottom of the sea will be no hiding place. The earth, the air, and sea shall all deliver up their dead. The dead, small and great, shall hear his voice and come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. At his call, every bone of all the unnumbered millions of the human race will come together, bone to his bone. At the same time, all the scattered atoms will collect each into its own body, All that dust shall now return, be arranged and marshaled in its proper place and order by the same wisdom and almighty power which at first created man out of the dust of the earth. Was there a a noise and a shaking among the dry bones in the valley of vision? What will be the noise and shaking and uproar when every bone shall fly through the atmosphere in quest of its kindred bone? What a picture. But not one shall be lost or miss its way or mistake its place. What apparent wild disorder when clouds of dust shall rise and darken the world. Now all that dust shall assemble a form, a vast multitude of human bodies, of both the righteous and the wicked. And now the whole race of Adam appears upon earth at once, a multitude which no one could number of all the ages and nations and languages, but their bodies will be wildly different. The bodies of the righteous will be glorious. Their weak, vile, corruptible bodies will be changed and made incorruptible, vigorous, spiritual, and glorious. Their bodies will resemble the body of of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. We look for the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it might be fashioned like unto His glorious body. With respect to the body of the wicked— Very little is revealed in Scripture. But they that shall be incorruptible, immortal, and inglorious, they shall awake to shame and everlasting contempt. Their bodies will appear suitable to their character and condition. Destitute of the robe of innocence and the righteousness of Christ, they will possess all the feelings of shame and remorse of one that God hath declared shall awake to shame and everlasting contempt. Now the souls of the righteous will come to take possession of their bodies. This is great. We hear this. All the spirits of of just men made perfect will return each to its former habitation. What must be the emotions of a glorified spirit about to take possession of its glorified body? Oh, this is the body which I once inhabited, from which I have long been absent. This is the body in which I have sinned, in which I enjoyed a day of salvation. This is the body in which I once heard the sound of the gospel and felt such a weight of guilt and horror that made me cry out, what must I do to be saved? This is that body in which I repented of my sins and cast myself at the Saviour's feet, crying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This is that body in which I first became acquainted with the Savior, when old things passed away, and behold, all things became new. This is that body which I dedicated and presented to God as a living sacrifice to be His forever. This is that body in which I endured such temptations and felt such struggles in my Christian warfare. This is that body in which so often I knelt in prayer, in which I found sweet communion with Christ. This is that body in which I suffered shame and reproach for the sake of Christ. And now it is raised in His image to go and dwell forever in His presence. O happy union! Now the souls of all the spirits in prison shall come forth and take possession of their bodies. Each one will return to its own appropriate body. O wretched habitation! This is the body which I once inhabited, from which I have long been absent. This is that body in which I have sinned, in which I heard the sound of the gospel. This is that wretched body in which I fed and clothed with so much care and yet neglected my soul. That body in which I was ashamed of Christ, which was too proud and too stubborn to bow the knee in prayer to God. Oh, that I had never seen you and could never see you again. Is it not enough to be tormented alone in my soul for all the deeds that I have done in the body? Must I again take a dwelling so loathsome and fitted and prepared? for the devil and his angels. Oh, miserable union! What a picture! God is not done with our bodies, and we aren't done with our bodies in death or in life. And what we do with our bodies makes a statement. It doesn't change things for eternity it's not irrevocable. I know some of, you, some of you here has a problem because you want to be, to be buried with your family. You've got to be cremated, and there are exceptions and all those things and so forth and so on, but it's clear from Scripture our bodies matter in life, and they matter in death, and we should take care of them. We should preserve them. They are temples of God, the Holy Spirit, and they do rest in their graves in union with Christ until the resurrection. As we finish this sermon— Let's move away from the the little thought about the brief time we will spend in our in our graves and I want you to think about how you will spend eternity for how eternity finds you it will leave you forever in a body glorious like God the son in his flesh or a body contemptible made to live with the devils being destroyed from the presence of the Lord forever and ever and ever there only are these two destinations, these two eternities, life and death, salvation, damnation, honor and glory, dishonor and contempt forever. Those of you who are outside of Christ, I, I plead with you, will you embrace eternal dishonor and contempt and death and damnation for a lifetime's worth of cheap sins that won't really bring you satisfaction. Turn ye, turn ye, for why will you die, Jesus says. He weeps, how I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. Come to me, Christ says. I don't promise you tomorrow, but I do promise you today. If you come now, I will not cast you out. And Christians, those of you who believe in Jesus, let's not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We might present our bodies as living sacrifices to God in life and in death. As we think about our own graves and our own death, the grave is not a doorway to nowhere. It's the front door of the Father's house, and we are buried in it, and God Himself is planting a seed that will be destined to grow forever. What an encouragement. What an encouragement to you and to me to live now as we shall wish we had lived when we come back into the body. Men and women, our bodies are not for fornication. They're not for pornography. They're not for anger and violence and malice and rage. They're not for alcoholism. They're not for um, overindulgence in food and other things of this world. Our bodies are for the Lord. Let us use them as that for His glory. They're destined to live forever. They're temples of God the Holy Spirit. Let us… Let us make them as fit as possible, as strong as possible, as healthy as possible, that we might be able to serve Christ as long as possible, with clarity in our minds and alacrity in our limbs, that we might give our best to God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, In heaven, we thank You, Lord, for Your Word, for Your truth, for its power. We pray this morning, O Lord, that You would draw near to us and help us, Lord, to live carefully by faith. For as R.C. Sproul once said, right now counts forever. We offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.